Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Life in the Pit, episode 17. For the second time ever on this podcast, we do have a brass player. His name is Guy Kelpin, and he plays trombone. He also plays the upright and electric bass for shows as well. And we'll have more about him and our interview in just a moment. Before I go on, I, I would definitely be amiss if I didn't mention that this episode is releasing on September 11th. This is uh, 19 years after 9-11. And as this is a podcast that talks about an industry that's quite prominent in New York City... I'm sure a lot of my listeners and a lot of the people who work in the pit were directly affected very close to that tragedy. If you have any stories that you'd like to share, uh, feel free to contact me through my website or to comment on the, at the Podbean app or um, even on uh, Twitter or uh, Instagram at Life in the Pit Pod. And I would love to hear or read your story, and I'd be happy to share it if you wish. Okay, this is not a news podcast, so I don't regularly bring up news here, even if it's arts-related. But I thought this article that I read uh, just a couple of days ago was relevant. It was an article from the BBC with thoughts from Andrew Lloyd Webber saying that the arts are at a point of no return. It talks about how we have to do everything we can to get theaters open at full capacity or we might not be able to recover. So I have two thoughts. The first is that Andrew Lloyd Webber might be right for what he specifically means when he says arts, and that is live theater or live performance. But saying the arts in general as being at the point of no return is just hyperbole. The arts have always and always will thrive, but they do have to adapt, but they always have adapted. The arts are not going anywhere. But to his point about live theater, if you're listening to this podcast because you like music or theater in general, but might be wondering, why not just open the doors at 25 or 30 percent occupancy? Let me give you a very broad answer as to why that can't happen. When you make a movie, for example, you pay everyone involved, usually several several hundred people, one time, and that's it. Now, some of them will get more money when and if the film makes a profit, but the movie can be shown to two people or 200, and it's not affecting anybody's livelihood other than the producers and the investors. A Broadway show, for example pays every actor, every production team member, every crew member, and every musician for each performance. If you've ever thought Broadway tickets are expensive, keep in mind that what everyone does in a movie once is happening each time just for you when you come to see it. Everyone there is operating on a skill level of the top 1% commensurate to their abilities, and they deserve to be paid accordingly. Now, I don't have union pay scales right in front of me, so uh, I'm going to say this just conservatively, that 
each ticket purchased at full price will probably cover the salary to to be made by one member of that production for that show. If the production employs 150 people, for example, then that is the minimum number of full price tickets that must be sold just for a show to break even. Discounted and free tickets will change that number. Now, if you fall below that number, it costs more to put the show on than um, than you're going to make. You'll lose money. So it becomes the only alternative is to not have the show. So now if you love theater and you have the means, there isn't an organization that wouldn't accept your donation. So that's one way that some of you can help right away. The arts are not at a point of no return, but live performers, especially those who were full-time professionals, are hurting. That's true. So there's one more way you can help. And some of you might not like hearing it, but here it goes. Stop politicizing the pandemic. Wear your mask or stay at home. There are enough studies available to show that when these two things happen, COVID cases are lower. The longer some of you listen to people who aren't experts and try to follow political narratives rather than what epidemiologists are saying, the longer our performance venues are going to stay closed and be limited to a number of patrons that's not sustainable. I'm sorry, guys. I will seldom make political statements but this actually should not be political. And the people I'm talking about should not still be out of work. Okay, it's hard to shift gears from that, but we'll do our best because I know why you guys are here. And that is hearing from great musicians who play for live theater. Well, this episode is special to me for reasons that I will explain in the interview, including the fact that had uh, circumstances been different, you might have been hearing this guest multiple times already before today. I'll explain as we get into the interview. Today I am talking to Guy Kelpin, someone I met about 15 years ago, someone with whom I have a lot in common. Guy plays trombone and bass. He's originally from the Milwaukee area. He has a bachelor's degree in music composition and trombone performance from Illinois Wesleyan University. He has two master's degrees from University of North Carolina School of the Arts, one in film music composition and one in trombone performance. He has a variety of ways he makes a living from being a performer, a teacher, and more recently, a production manager. There's a lot to discuss, so without further delay, here's my interview with Guy Kelpin. So Guy, how have things been going during this crazy time? It's actually been pretty good. Obviously, I've been disappointed with all the things that got canceled. But for the most part, um, there have been a lot of neat developments I never really expected. Things that came up, technology that I'm using now that I never really would have had the chance to, let alone been forced to, to learn. So I have to say it's been it's been okay. Ups and downs here and there like anybody else, but trying to stay positive. Okay. Well, we're going to get more into what you've been doing in, in just a moment. But uh, you know, I was just thinking... Since since you're here, let's see what what should we talk about today. You know, we have a lot in common. We've got oh, we're about the same height, same weight. Uh, we wear a similar hairstyle. <laughs> That's right, same hairstyle. 
But we have a lot in common. We could talk about uh, baseball, what little's left, or we could talk about film music, or you know, maybe even the various uh, stages, phases we've had of music. You know, I know you've had you had like an all Mozart phase, and then it went into what uh, Henry Rollins. <laughs> oh yeah, that's yeah. for sure. Henry Rollins and Frank Zappa, and all those kinds of things. I've been, you know, we could we could start there. We could go anywhere. I like the I like the baseball idea though. That's good. Uh, but I guess, you know, it's called Life in the Pit. We should we should talk about music and musical theater. Uh, so just to be um, forthcoming with the listeners, when I first got the idea of this podcast, I was on a walk in my neighborhood, and um, I didn't even really think it through. I just, okay, talking about musical theater, talking about playing music for musical theater, that was the, the, the only thing I had in my head. And so I got out my phone and I texted Guy Kelpin. And I, I, because, because I already knew this, I'd already learned a little bit about podcasts and what makes some successful more than others. And there's some um, data that suggests that having a co-host uh, makes you more likely to succeed. And I think it's just that a lot of podcasts have chosen ho- co-hosts, but I, I was reading an argument of why that's a good idea. So the very first thing I did was, um, text you and and just say, hey, would you consider being a co-host? And so that's the direction this show could have gone. But uh, you, you quickly responded, sounds like a good idea, but you're just probably a little bit too busy to be able to commit. Yeah, I was probably worried about it at the time because my life has always been a little bit um, not unpredictable, but just definitely things that go ups and downs. And I, I definitely would like to do the, the concept like what we're doing right here, just having a having a conversation together. And that's probably what the success for um, podcasts are, where you're just talking to each other, right? And carrying on a, a conversation. Well, as soon as you as soon as you told me that, and I started thinking about it, and I thought, well, would I? Ask, is there someone else I would ask? And before I even came up with a name, uh, I thought to myself, instead of just talking us talking actually i thought about it that probably that would be good for a few episodes but then after a while i'm not sure what stories related to the pit like we could probably have a podcast of just kelpin and lane talk about stuff (laughs) but if we're just talking about one thing you know it probably would not be great in in the long term you know but then I thought, well, what about all of the musicians we know? It's like if I just get them on the phone like this and just start talking to them, get all of their stories, because everybody has something unique to share, and we've got you know, all these different instruments represented. So I'm glad it worked out that you're not the co-host. <laughs> but- sure, it's been very exciting for me to go back and listen and, and catch up with all these your um, your guests that you have had, because we do have these people in common. For the most part, I've worked with them a lot too and i can just see this being very interesting from everybody's perspectives yeah and we've got a few uh you know by the time your episode airs we will have had a few uh guests that that you don't know and actually some that i haven't met myself you know that are kind of broadening outward so it's it's kind of fun we've got local representation but we also have all over the country and actually um yeah by the time you hear you know your episode comes out i will have uh, presented an interview from someone who lives in Melbourne, Australia. So it's oh neat. Yeah, I get fun. this whole world perspective. Yeah, <laughs> where do we even begin? We met in Little Symphony, Forsyth cross- County. That's what I was going to say. I was trying to do the math too. I figured we crossed paths for the first time in Little Symphony. Yeah, you were playing horn. I was playing bass. Yep. 
Yeah, and so I, I served as substitute horn, but uh, the, the person I was substituting for was bi- busy so much that I played more services than he did probably the last two or three years it was around. So <laughs> I think that was my case as well, too. I stepped in as a sub and then ended up being there pretty frequently. Yeah. You know when that would have been, like 2006 or somewhere in there, seven maybe, or even earlier? I well, no I joined Facebook in 2008, and I do get occasionally, it pops up on memories, me talking about it being the last one. Mm-hmm. And so I mm-hmm. want to say 2009 sounds right for when it sure. ended, maybe 2010 at the latest, but yeah, it was it was around that time. But, but we probably met around 2006 or so. And interestingly, that we didn't actually cross paths at the School of the Arts here, but I knew of you because you were in the class two years ahead of me in the film music program. So yeah, I guess we had the same program. Yeah, I guess your first fall was after... 99. Yeah, yeah. So, so I graduated the spring, 99, so we is like I left and then you came in. So, <laughs> yeah, you have a lot of musical hats, and I would say, yeah, just going from, oh, gosh one year to the next. I think if we if we asked what you were doing a year ago, it's it's different than what you were doing six months ago. It it really is, yeah. For the most part, some of the things have been pretty pretty normal. I have a church job that I've had for twenty years. I've uh, taught private lessons and substitute taught as a music teacher for, for band programs for pretty steadily. But all the other things that have come and gone, being a production manager for different places, that's that's not static at all. It's pretty right. in flux. Right. Um, and you also, you play a lot of instruments. You, you of course, you know, have studied composing. I, I don't know how active you do that anymore, but you've, you certainly have that. And I know, I know you best as playing trombone and bass. So those are the instruments we're going to focus on. Sure but, um, you know, I, I just want to ask this question right away. What is, what is the first instrument from your house that you rescue if there's a fire? Oh my gosh! Probably the most flammable one, the um, the upright double bass that I just bought, I think two or three years ago. Now it's a Shen. Um, interestingly, it's a size five eighths, which is kind of a non-standard size. It's um, small, which fits me very well, mm-hmm. and it's also nice for what I do with playing with pit orchestras because we are not afforded a whole lot of space. Right. So the five eighth size, is, but it, it was probably the most expensive single piece of equipment that I purchased. So that's obviously why, and sentimentally, it's just you know the most important and most irreplaceable thing I got. It, it, it always amuses me when I hire you for bass and you get a sub and they come in with a full-size bass. And I, yeah. the two things come to mind. It's like, wow, that's a big bass. And then two, I look at the, the size space we it's have bass. and it's like, wow, that's a big bass. <laughs> exactly. That's also why I started playing the, um, the upright electric, which is a really nice option. It doesn't afford a whole lot of... Um, good timbre with a bow but for pizzicato it's great and for small spaces it certainly gets the job done right um, and it's a nice hybrid because you know it's one instrument you know instead exactly of having exactly two. and it is kind of awkward to play a part that was meant to be on upright on an electric i've had to do that for like oklahoma and it just isn't right <laughs> right you know appropriately but okay uh well, let's let's just start you don't have to go to the very beginning but uh, let's just talk about your musical journey. How did you get into music? Uh, what, what were your first instrument or instruments, and uh, what are the ones you picked up along the way? It's kind of neat. When I was in um, middle, uh, I guess early grade school, third grade, 
my mom wanted me to be involved in as much stuff as I could be. I was taking golf lessons. I was in Boy Scouts and all that stuff. So she figured I should take piano lessons too. So I took piano lessons and quickly decided I hated it. <laughs> so I was just being forced into these technique books that were, you know, your traditional way of, of, of learning. And it, it just wasn't for me at the time. So I, I think I, I decided to do it for two or three years and, and I could quit when I started band. I took trombone. So I, I, um, started in the middle or in the public school band program in, in fifth grade and realized quickly that I missed the piano lessons because I was kind of experimenting on my own. So I picked that back up in about seventh grade. Um, and I was about sixth and seventh grade when I really started getting interested just in all things music. Like you mentioned earlier, my fascination with Mozart was probably my first love of music in general. I liked, um, you know, just the symmetry of it and the simplicity and, not predictable nature, but just very, you know, standard classical music. Um, so about seventh grade, I started taking trombone more seriously, too, and ended up having a lot of really awesome opportunities in the Milwaukee area where I grew up. I grew up in a small town called Waukesha, mm -hmm. uh, and I was fortunate. I didn't really realize it at the time um, how strong the music programs were and how excellent my my private lesson teachers were and had all those opportunities with the Milwaukee Youth Symphony. Um, one kind of strange thing I started doing, I think in about sixth or seventh grade, I started taking private lessons in music theory, uh, and that branched out into composition. And that kind of laid the foundation for everything that I've done ever since. Um, my, te my teacher's name was Jim Mahan, and he was just kind of a legend in the, um, in the Waukesha School District. So that really just sort of laid the foundation for all the stuff I I knew I would be doing for the rest of my life. I guess I made a decision about seventh grade that I wanted to be a professional musician and whatever it took to to do music for a living, that's what would end up happening. And to a certain degree, that's actually what's happened. So you got through high school, uh, just, just to summarize. So you had like two rounds of piano and mm -hmm. uh, pretty consistent with the trombone and you got into theory and composition. So we still haven't gotten to bass yet, right? So. Sure. Bass, is, bass was weird. Um, I took some uh, cello lessons as a minor instrument in college, just, you know, your basic technique classes and some private lessons, and decided that the the bass clef is kind of where I, I reside as a musician. I love chord changes, and I love trombone, obviously, and a little bit of tuba. And so I, I decided I would experiment with just buying a, a cheap electric bass sometime around 99 or 2000, and just um, wasn't entirely self-taught because I did have some lessons here and there. And, and everything I learned as a trombone player and as a bass or as a piano player translated very, very well to the technique I needed to learn as, as a bass player. Um, the upright bass came along kind of as, a, as an impulse buy. Right. I'd been playing jazz in some um, some j and co small combos and doing a little bit of theater work just to get my feet off the ground as a as a bass player and bought an upright bass just to experiment with it. It sat there for almost two years. I never played anything on it at all. Joined a community orchestra um, and it sort of take off from there. And obviously, um, there are a lot more bass gigs than there are trombone gigs as far as music theater is concerned. So I, I started going down that road and it just built from there. Right. But, you know, it's like trombone, you know, it's not like trying to um, get a gig when you're playing harp or contrabassoon right. or something like that. It's so, not as specified. Yeah. yeah. yeah so or, or even I, I shouldn't even go on that route. Euphonium, yeah. you know, it's like euphonium. It's, exactly. And that's another one of my doubles that I barely ever get to play is euphonium. I love it. But there are isn't a, 
unless you create your own opportunities, right. there just aren't, aren't any standard jobs for you. Right. Now you, um, obviously I know that you did your, your, your first time at school of the arts was a graduate degree in film scoring. What was your mm-hmm. undergraduate degree in? My undergraduate degree at Illinois Wesleyan in Bloomington was in composition, but I also did all the degree requirements for a trombone performance degree. So it was sort of all encompassing music. And of course I got all the, um, the theory and history background and liberal arts education there as well. So it was, it was a composition degree. I, I kind of joke that I've been having a, maybe a 20 year writer's block as a composer. <laughs> yeah, and right. maybe one of these days I'll get back into it. And ultimately I really do feel that's where part of my calling in life is. And I've just been absorbing ever since, but yeah. lots of little projects here and there, but creatively I haven't been as productive as maybe I should be. Well, that's, that's the case with, with us all, I think, for some degree or another. Um, and then after film scoring, you're like, I, I just haven't had enough yet. So you went back to get another degree, right? I did. Um, Jim Miller was the trombone teacher here at the time, and I had already known him from being on campus as a film school student. Um, and I just really decided it'd be a great opportunity for, for me to go ahead and get that degree here as well. Which, which worked out really well. I was working part-time as a, at the music store at J.W. Pepper, um, and I was working part-time as a music director for a church. And it was just a great opportunity for me to continue uh, honing my skills as an orchestral trombone player, which has been invaluable as a musician just across the board since. Right. Um, so let's, let's backtrack once again. How did you get into theater? When was, how old were you and what was your first show? Oh, okay. I skipped that part. When I was in high school, the first production, I think probably like most, most musicians who have their first experience with theater was with the school, the high school production. In my case, it was my sophomore year. The all school production was the King and I, and I played trombone in the orchestra. Um, we had a really, really, really high quality, um, orchestra program and teacher at the time. And I just was really glad to be involved in, in playing trombone. Interestingly enough, the next year they did the pajama game and we had a complete change in leadership from the director and the music director. And I didn't really want to play in the orchestra that year. Mm. So I stepped way outside of my comfort zone and actually did a stage role. This was the, one of the very few times in my life that I did a stage role. I was in the chorus and had a few lines here and there quickly discovered that that uh, life was not for me, yep. <laughs> which is fine, which is fine. And it was kind of cool that I had the opportunity to, to experiment with like that a little bit in high school. Yeah. Just to interject, I, I really think I'm a fan of if you do anything for theater, you know, as even as a pit musician, uh, you know, before you get too busy and you start doing that full time or whatever, do some other stuff in theater, like get on stage one time, maybe, I don't know, help out with the crew one time. It, it really just takes that much for you to have some kind of appreciation for what they're doing because nothing is worse to me as a music director than a pit musician who, you know, doesn't understand why, you know, things are taking longer than they should, you know, or why, why is this rehearsal dragging what's going on, you know? So it's like you, you need to have a bit of empathy to succeed well, uh, you know, as a pit musician, and I just... I just encourage anybody, you know, go for it. Get, get yourself some experience. Exactly. It gives you that perspective so you understand why there are vamps here or why the scenes need to be changed where they are. And as a musician, you're aware of why those things are happening and how 
an actor will skip lines or sing the wrong words on the wrong verse. And you have to be aware as a trombone player that, oh, they're on measure 56. We're on measure 26, but they're on 56. Let's now be at 56. Right. So just just having that perspective. Um, And for me, it's been incredibly invaluable. I just used um, a lot of the things that I, I saw being done with lights and with stage management that now I'm actually doing to a degree professionally that I wouldn't have had experience with if I hadn't just had my eyes and ears open while I was playing the trombone. So. Yeah. Uh, actually, let's transition to that. So, uh, you, you know, obviously you've played trombone and, and you played, uh, you played bass, you've, you know, arranged some music and, and you've, you've led choir at church, but talk about where, where your career has kind of transitioned to the last year or so. It's neat because I've never really been one for the spotlight. I'm not the kind of person who wants to sing a solo or to do a, um, to, to be on stage in the spotlight. I've, I've always been really interested in what goes on behind the scenes. Um, not necessarily just with the physical stuff of putting stuff on the stage and planning things, but being part of a live production. And that's kind of led to where I, I had a role and still have a role with the Piedmont Wind Symphony as an operations manager where I'm involved in, um, a lot of the physical things that do happen in the planning, um, but also during a production, being involved in getting the lights on and getting the stage set up and those sorts of things. And I'm actually doing that as well at, um, at the School of the Arts currently as a production manager. And I find myself involved in things I never thought I would know anything about, like live streaming and setting up cameras and setting up microphones and having um, things configured for, for a live production. And that's it's lucrative. So I'm actually making money doing these things that have led me in this direction. Um, but also my uh, my background as a performer really helps understanding what what needs to be done in order to accommodate those things for the people who are performing. Right. So what are some of those duties? So like um, um, a just a concerts going on at school, the at school, of the arts. What do you, what are you expected to do for that? I'll take a very simple like the most uh straightforward recital that we do will be a simple piano recital where there are, you know, three sonatas being performed with an intermission between the second and third one. Um, and the things that need to happen in terms of opening the house and opening the doors and having the lights turn on at the right time and coordinating with the stage manager and sometimes actually acting as the stage manager Mm -hmm. as well as, um, um, setting up the recording booth and having all those things all happen all at once. And it's interesting because as a performer, I've learned to deal with my nerves performing. You want to just be prepared to play the trombone part in my case, but it's the same thing being a production manager where you have to do all this stuff in real life time. Because if you press the wrong button at the wrong time, all of a sudden the lights turn out or they turn on or the live stream kicks out. So just being able to, to manage your anxiety is is a big part of it right we're just trying to get an idea of like what are all the things that you're expected to do so like you like you, um, some of the things that i think i know from based on you know observation is that you have to bring out music stands take off music stands set up chairs is that some of the things Absolutely. That you've done? that's a big part of the choreography of it and those things need to happen at the right time and if you have people who are helping you you need to tell them um, when that happens and how it happens. And something as simple as making sure that the lid is up on the piano at the beginning of the, the recital, because right. you don't want your performer to walk out there and realize that, you know, there's no music stand, you know, those kinds of things. 
So there's a che- there's a checklist, you know, and, and I have a mental checklist, but I also try to keep a physical one where you literally go step by step by step and make sure everything happens at 729, 720, you know, 730, making right. sure all that stuff happens. Yeah, do you use an app on your phone to, to, to notify you and all that? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yep. And everybody has their own methods of doing that, but there are standard ways. Right. Um, yeah, I, I did a little bit of that for like it was kind of scholarship requirements in college. We had to do a certain number of hours as Sure. something and they encourage you to get a lot of experience and you know i remember i had to wear a headset and talk to the house manager or whoever was you know running the lights and all that and uh and and then also communicate with the performers had to hold the door for the performers you know sure. so that they're not holding their own important. door yeah yeah and and it's amazing depending on the size of the production how many people are involved and how many steps need to be taken like something we do like the nutcracker at the stevens center there are 50 people who are on headset behind the stage and you know everybody has their role and you stay in your lane and you open the curtain when it's that time where i cue the orchestra to to tune at a certain time and it's all very well thought out right and also um don't you aren't you responsible for like Facebook live videos and things. Those as well. We have a team for that too. And sometimes when I'm completely on my own for certain productions, I'm um, trying to navigate that, like uh, juggling things, making sure that I start the live stream, but at the same time I have to run out the hallway and cue the door to open and those kinds of things. So it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to, to handle all at once. Right. And of course the technology can be fussy too. And you, you hate it when all of a sudden there's a glitch in the Wi-Fi or something, but it, it can happen. Right. I think we tapered off with your theory, uh, not your theory, your theater story. Uh, We we talked about high school. When did that pick back up again? Did you did you stay active in Pitts through college or did you have any downtime? It was neat. I had a really good just quick transition to, to professional playing in late high school where I actually started getting hired as a as a musician in the area in Milwaukee to play for some community colleges and from some other high school programs that didn't have professional trombone players. Um, uh, my Actually, my piano teacher at the time was hiring me to play for some productions. I think the first one was Annie at um, Alverno College. Right. I played Annie. I think, I think I've played that show, productions of that show, maybe eight times since. Right. But that was the first one I did there. And then in college, I had the really good opportunities through the school at Illinois Wesleyan to play for She Loves Me, and a couple other shows we did um into the woods mm-hmm. interestingly enough there was a case where i was playing um a bassoon part because there was not a trombone part right. so they they got me to play bassoon and i i rigged it so i had a mute and maybe a, a hat over my bell so that i could be as acoustically correct as close as i could replicating the sound of a bassoon but also for the balance because trombone is so much louder of an instrument in right. terms of the production also, I had an opportunity professionally in college to play for Aida, not the musical Aida, but the actual Verdi Opera. Right. Um, playing for a, a company called Opera Illinois, um, which was great. This will tell you when it was. I um, actually, here's a horror story. I almost missed that gig because um, at the time I did not even know that I had an email account through the school, mm-hmm. and they were sending me a contract to my email. So it was like 96 or so, right when email was brand new. And I almost lost I almost lost that gig because I did not reply to that email. Right. So, and I every day I check my email about every 10 minutes, probably ever since. So that won't happen again. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, now you got to do now if you got Facebook, you got to remember to go to that other inbox, uh, other mailbox. Uh, I mean, my wife has yep. lost a gig 
because you know Facebook doesn't tell you always. And exactly, yeah. yeah. And if you get an if you get a message from somebody you're not friends with or something, it just goes into a spot where you'll never see it. So if you don't check those things, it's amazing the things that you'll you'll miss. And yeah, for me, and- I. I pride myself on being punctual and responsible, so we try those things. Right. Yeah, not even always. Sometimes Facebook will tell you, uh, so-and-so would like to send you a message, and then you can go check it, you know, and see if it's something you want to pursue or if it's spam. But then other times, it just someday you look at that other and you see, oh, there's a one in parentheses. Let me go check that out. And then <laughs> yep. But it's just amazing, those those little details that can lead to a major event in your life. It's like why I'm right. here at the School of the Arts. I'd had a conversation, and if I hadn't had that conversation, I wouldn't have this job. You know, those kinds of things. Right. That are, and there are other things where you could probably make a mistake and take a gig that you probably should have said no to, but you just never know where the where the river will flow. Right. Yeah, it's if you're early on. By the way, it's just not a good idea to say no to gigs. You know, they. Oh, um, yeah. I think yep. everyone at some point needs to recognize when it's time to say no. I've had that a few times in my life where, um, you know, for the sake of my health, I have got to start saying no more often. Absolutely. But I have stages in my career where uh, I can't afford to say no right now, and. You know, it's just funny. Some of the opportunities I've had are I, I can almost like draw a diagram. It's like I have this opportunity I love because I met somebody from an opportunity that I'm not sh- wasn't sure about, which came about because of another opportunity you because just, it's just like exactly. a little chain you know it's amazing i can I can mark the times in my life too where I went from kind of being a bottom feeder carp where mm-hmm. I would just take whatever came along for free just so I could make those connections. And then I guess I turned into maybe a possum where I was a little bit more selective. Right. And then finally here I am. I'm a raccoon where I'm an opportunist. I'll still take what I can get. But at the same time, I'd be a little bit more cheesy, you know. I think I just found the title of our episode. It's going to be Carp, Possum, Raccoon. I'm just going <laughs> to put that in quotes and, and just say Guy go. Kelp and Trombone, Bass, uh, I love analogies yeah. too. It's one of those oh, yeah. things that just I, I like saying. Sometimes I'd say things before. Like, what are you talking about? I'm just speaking in strange analogies. <laughs> uh, so when you moved to North Carolina for grad school, did you have any significant downtime before you got back into the pit? I certainly did. I actually, when I moved here, I knew nobody and I had zero connections whatsoever. I was really fortunate to make a couple connections right away through. Um, the music store, I had friends from Waukesha who knew people in Winston-Salem, so they set me up with a couple conversations, which led to my involvement with the Piedmont Wind Symphony, which led to my involvement with employment at J.W. Pepper. And then those places were kind of nerve centers for the community that, that picked up after a little while. But you're right, that first year I was here, there was very little opportunity performance. But it picked up pretty quickly. I was fortunate, and I guess I was somewhat aggressive in my networking which you just have to do it's not yeah. in my nature i'm i'm fairly antisocial to begin with but when it ta- when when it comes to networking to get jobs i, I get a little bit more enthusiastic I guess. yeah i i like where we live for the sake of this podcast because i think it's representative of um what is uh possible for most people it's like you know mm-hmm. m- you know i i know that new york is where theater is you know it's just like uh and you could say Chicago kind of the same way or London, but most of my listeners don't live there. And I think most people who are going to pursue music and play in a pit are not going to pursue it to that extent. Now, some of them will, and I'm, I'm going to have some of them on as guests. And, and I think if that's, that is the highest 
uh, if that is like the priority you want to do with your life, certainly you want to go go where you can make the most money for yourself, make the most prestige. But, you know, a lot of people live in these, like, I'm not even sure what the population of Winston is. It's a little little over 200,000. And uh, it's a metro area of, I guess, just around a million, maybe a little less than that. I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, and that's kind of representative of, you know, people who live like, well, where you came from, like Milwaukee, you know, sure. or uh, it could be Kansas City or it could be central Illinois. That's just a typical, typical area. Yeah. And I think the point is, is that uh, at least right now, you know, it's hard to say what things will be like whenever the pandemic finally subsides. But sure. uh, as far as we can tell, you know, and from recent experience, the arts, uh, there are opportunities and you can, you know, and they're fairly lucrative, maybe not enough. So for most people to, to have just one thing, but you can have a portfolio of things and do really well with that. So, um, that's why I just like talking about, yeah. And what you said, network aggressively, don't say no, at least early on. (laughs) And, uh, you know, just take some advantages of opportunities. So, so when you got into Pitt uh, in North Carolina, was it still as trombone or had you started marketing as bass? It actually was a fairly natural switch. I started doing um, bass professionally about 2002 or three, and people started to know me as a bass player. And then they found out that I played trombone, too. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was kind of nice. There were a few cases where I actually played both either as a substitute for one half, one weekend and then played bass for the second weekend, those kinds of things. But um. It's been kind of a double life, it really has. And, of course, I added upright more. Let, let's do this as a two-part question. What what would you say is the most difficult theater book you've played on bass and the most difficult book you've played on trombone? You know, um, it's interesting. Probably the hardest book physically I ever read in my life, I read as a substitute for A Christmas Carol. And mm-hmm. you've probably heard this before. The original um, engraving of A Christmas Carol was just physically impossible to read because there were photocopies and there were inserts printed over it and things marked off and then reprinted. And um, it's hard enough to read anyway, because technically there is a lot of music in that book. I'm sorry. And let, then, me, uh, let me interrupt. Have you heard episode eight with Kate Hopper? You know, I think she probably mentioned that as yep, well. She mentioned <laughs> Christmas Carol. And then I've played it on trombone quite a few times since sort of tag teaming that one. I'm not the regular trombone player, but I've played on it enough times to realize that every time I play that show, it's a little stressful. It's one of those cases. Um, More recently, interestingly enough, I did a recording session for just this summer for a live, well, for tracks for tintypes. They did it on Theater Alliance. Right. And that book, that trombone part was um, very, very involved because there are a lot of pedal tones as a bass trombone player and a lot of lead trombone jazz parts that were up above the staff and really tricky. And I had the good fortune to actually record it instead of playing it live. Because if we had played that show live, you know, 14 times, I, I wouldn't have hit every single note every single time. I'd be embarrassed. Kind of right. like the way Chicago, that book is the same way, where it's not terribly difficult, but it's just enough that you'll miss something on every show, no matter what. Right. Um, um, as far as bass is concerned, um, bass parts are really weird because they can either be your typical oompa, very predictable um, lines where they just follow the chords or they can be almost more lyrical, like in the sense of uh, um, a bass part that Stephen Schwartz would write. So a show like um, Children of Eden or Pippin, those bass parts are just much harder to play than your typical um, Rodgers and Hammerstein kind of thing. 
just because of the fermatas and the more, uh, like I said, more lyrical quality of the bass part. It's, it's not as predictable pattern-wise. Right. Uh, when you play bass for a show, you usually, I mean, you've got, you've got some hybrids, but have you ever had to, like, do, like, some of the other bass players and just bring, you know, multiple instruments and multiple oh, yeah. amps well, and all that? Yeah. Next to normal comes to mind. We did that one where I was playing the upright electric on the on the um, the acoustic parts, and then I was playing my five string electric. And sometimes you just have a few seconds to change in between, and you have two amps set up and effects boxes and and all that stuff to to navigate. Usually in a very small space, you know. Yeah. Next to normal is another hard book, as you know. Well, <laughs> especially that opening to act too. That do 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 And then you have meter changes, and then you have vamps within the middle of a measure that you have to jump cut in the middle. You know, and it's hard enough to play those licks to begin with, and then all of a sudden you have to be on your toes, knowing what <laughs> what's going on. Hopefully, not a beat behind, just right on top of it, being able to anticipate. Right. Um. So other than almost missing a, a gig because of not checking an email, uh, is there anything else that you can tell us that's just kind of a, a horror story from your pit experience? Oh, my gosh. There have been so many things. There's just lots of things that can go wrong. Um, <laughs> I had one case. Luckily, this was just in a rehearsal, but my tuning peg broke on my electric bass. Mm. and. I did. This is one of the very few times I didn't actually have another bass with me. Usually, I either have my electric bass or another bass in the in the um, in my trunk, or I carry what it's called a U bass, which is a tiny little uh, electric bass that I just have as backup. But this one case, I didn't I didn't have that with me, so I had to run home get a new bass. Miss half the rehearsal. Luckily, like I said, it was only during a rehearsal, but it's one of those cases I didn't expect. Mm. Um, Another funny case that happened was I was playing a show at, um, this wasn't their fault, at, um, at Greensboro Day School. We had a power outage, and we were doing a big production of um, Crazy For You was the name of the show. Mm -hmm. It's like old-timey Gershwin. And there was, a, uh, there was a big chorus number that had a double bass, which is what I was playing at the time, as a prop on stage that they were dancing with. So they had an acoustic bass because I was playing my electric upright. So they wanted to do a performance on, on the spot just to, for the, the audience that was gathered there with a the little bit of light that we had. So I ended up playing the student bass that was a prop on stage for that number. And I was just, it was one of those cases where it was, who knew what was going to happen? And we ended up, we ended up pulling it off, but obviously the rest of the show was canceled. Right. What's a fond memory from a show? Oh man, I just think, well, I would be remiss to not mention the fact that I met my wife doing music theater. Well, we yeah. were doing hello. Do we were doing hello Dolly at on the West side civic theater. And uh, this is one of those cases where I was, I was fairly established, but I was still, I was still new to the community about 12 years ago. And I was playing what was a free gig at the time. I was like, well, I'm just here for fun to meet people and to play stuff. And hello Dolly is a fun book and I enjoyed playing it. So we ended up, she was in the cast. Abby was in the cast as a dancer and chorus member. And obviously that's my fondest memory of a show right. <laughs> that I can think of. Um, and in other cases with um, just I, I enjoy when I get called for a show, seeing who who else is in the orchestra. And you get the call sheet and you realize uh, most of these people I have a really good chemistry with. It's just neat that um, it's a small kind of tight knit group of people in the in the triad that we, we get to work with. And when you see that that call sheet and I and it's a show that I know and like, you just know that it's going to be an exciting adventure with these people musically. Right. And, you know, I just go ahead and say, you know, in front of the listeners that um, I've talked before about how important it is, obviously, to 
be a good musician, to play well. But uh, you can be a great musician and not have the right attitude or be difficult to work with, and you just went exactly. several down, rows down. Um, so you're a good musician, but you are also one of the really calm voices in the pit. And I think people who've ever worked with me know that I'm pretty calm except for about a week sure. leading up to the exactly. show. And exactly. I, and I get really hard to be around and I get very anxious and, and so forth. Um, and the worst thing that I can do is have musicians that are well, echoing me. Yes. It's yeah. like, I'm, I mean, I'm worried about where are we going to put everybody? And occasionally I'll get a pit musician. And they're like, Oh, well, David, where are we going to be? And I'm like, that's what I'm stressing out about. <laughs> but I don't, I don't ever get that from you. I always get the, ah, we'll just, we'll figure it out. It always works out. And just, yeah, that, that calm demeanor, uh, and that's a, an ingredient. I think that goes as it's every bit of of a component for success. I, I like that phrase in, ingredient because I always say that people need to have three. There's a set of three things you need to have to be a successful musician. You obviously need those musical skills, all the technical facility. You need your professional skills, which is just being organized and having the stuff that you do and you need. And then this this mystery ingredient you're talking about was like personal skills, things yeah. that are social things that are are, you know, that make you fun to work with and be easy to be with. And, and you can make up for any one of those, la if you have a lack in any of those departments, if you have really good personal skills and you're a hard worker, you can overcome some of those musical skills. And, you know, like, like you said, that hierarchy of hiring people and being involved can, can change. Obviously you need the musical skills to begin with, but some people are just fun to be with and it depends on the production and, and it'll be a, a good show just because they're fun to be with and musically yeah. they'll make it work. Yeah, I won't. I won't mention his name, but uh, the, I know you played the the passion that I wrote the first time. Oh, yes. but Did you yeah. play it the second time in two thousand? I did play both times. I played okay. trombone for you on, in two thousand twelve, and then what would have been two thousand earlier than that was seven or eight. When was it? So I'm anyway. just going to give two stories, and I will not tell their names just to be fair. So in two thousand ten, we had a trumpet player for that production, and he, I somehow did not make a trumpet part for one mm. of the pieces and he's like well can you just go copy me what you're reading and i'll just transpose it it was just so so i mean i was panicking like what am i going to do where this is our only rehearsal as an as an orchestra what are we going to do yeah and he was like he just shrugs over here i'll just transpose it first of all he had the skill to be able to do that and second of right. all he he was in the business of making my life easier he had moved away, and I had to use a different trumpet player for 2012. And that one, in front of everybody, asked, I, I don't know, well, I, I remember it was in front of everybody. Maybe, maybe he, maybe I was the only one that heard it. He asked, since I don't play on every piece, can we play my piece, my movements first so I can go home? Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. And, and, and it's amazing what the difference in team players and people who are out for themselves. Oh, and he threw, making... and he threw that given that I'm given I'm not being paid very much. And I just, I don't even know if I, I don't know how I worded it. I know the thought that came to my mind was you're being paid the same as everybody else. It's actually, you're getting paid more per note. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's one way. And that's one thing I've noticed as a, as a trombone player versus bass. I am when I'm trombone, I'm two things. I'm counting rests all the time and I'm usually being told to play quieter. Right. So in playing bass, you just play almost nonstop. Right. So it's a totally different mentality. And I, I try to go into my trombone 
gigs like a bass player. I'm there concentrating the whole time and I'm, I'm engaged and trying to be a problem solver as much as I can, or at least not trying to add problems to the production. Right. So I appreciate um, you noticing that. What is, um, what's a bucket list show that you haven't gotten a chance to play yet? Anything Sondheim. I love Sondheim. So like Sweeney Todd, I've never had the chance to play. And some of the ones that I have played, I'd love to play again into the woods and, um, uh, funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Those are great. Um, those I have played, but I'd like to play again. But one show that I've never gotten the chance to play bass for is Jesus Christ Superstar, mm. which I would love to play just because that's an iconic rock and roll bass part, kind of laid the foundation for so many other things that are that are like it, but not as good. I did play trombone on it once, so I'm familiar with the show, but I've never gotten to play play the bass part. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great one. So that's one of those, uh, especially get the original concept album. That's a great exactly. album. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that aligns you if you're going to ask me about my musical taste. Like I like like prog rock, progressive rock. You know, things with mixed meters and a little bit of edge to them. So Jesus Christ Superstar as a show kind of is is my style of music that right. I like. Uh, there was a time in my life where I wasn't sure what I thought of Andrew Lloyd Webber. You know, sure. in, in terms of of respect, but you know. Like, that that original show, um, you know, I, I think a lot of it is just because of, of guys like David Cullen that have orchestrated mm-hmm. his later shows. But, yeah, that was that was a case where, you know, he didn't have his team yet. He wasn't a big name and he, he put oh. this all together and it's great stuff. Yeah, I kind of think of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat as sort of a um, a precursor to it, kind of like the Hobbit to the Lord of the Rings. So right. you get all those elements in in Joseph that are similar in in, G- in Jesus Christ Superstar. Right, but, and it's short. What's uh, what do you have going on as far as a project? Uh, as soon as the next time we're allowed to to meet in public and do things? That's a really good question. And I wish that a lot of things that had been postponed got postponed again. So I wish those things were for real scheduled, but I had had some, some musicals on the, on the docket. And I, I do another project where I play in a band called Bantam Rooster. We're an event band and we have some things that are still scheduled for the fall. And I'm looking forward to playing for those, their wedding receptions and things of that nature. So I'm hoping to get a chance to, to play those. Right. And, I've been enjoying all the, the productions that we're doing here at the School of the Arts. So I do have a lot of things that are I'm not necessarily performing on, but I am I'm a part of the production team for a lot of this stuff here. So it's right. keeping me busy. But yeah. I hope to get back to the creative part of things and performing, obviously. You know, I just realized there's a there's a performance com- well, it's coming up for us. It probably will have already happened by the time this episode goes out. But, uh, you know, it's the only theater around here that's doing live theater at the moment, that's theater Alliance. Yep. And theater the, one of the rule is, is that, uh, well, the musicians have to wear masks and, and it just now occurred to me, well, can't do anything with reeds or brass. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And that's one of those concerns that we have right now too. It's like, we can't sing in groups as a chorus and we can't play trombone unless we're 20 feet away from somebody else. So it's just one of those cases where our instruments are kind of, uh, sidelined at the moment although if you could figure out how to play a brass instrument like over a cloth covering like why you're doing that oh, yeah. that would just be that would just be like a rock star thing to do you know <laughs> it's amazing all the thoughts that are going on are everybody's inventing new ideas new ways of doing stuff with plexiglass and right. live stream you name it <laughs> so yeah. um that would i mean just one of the last uh, last few things i just want to mention is I, I just love some of the projects that you've posted before and I, and I don't even really know what all they are but you know, you you probably will not be the only trombonist that I interview for this show, but you'll probably oh, yeah. be the only person that I interview 
who has a trombone chainsaw. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> yeah. Does that I, function as a chainsaw? Or? It functions as a um, as as wall art. It right. doesn't function as anything. It's one of those cases where it was just a bunch of broken parts that I cobbled together and made into a, um, for lack of a better term, art. Right. <laughs> so, All right. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna post a picture of that to the Instagram oh, page, okay. you know, just so people know what we're talking about. That kind of sums up my goofiness. That's just one of those things. It's not to be taken seriously, but it's just one of those things. It's just indicative of my of my weirdness. So. Right. And I'll edit this next part out if you don't want me to include it. But I'll also sure. say, it, it was it's amusing going to your house because you have I'm not even, I don't even know how many in, instruments you have in the house, but oh my God. but it but you have it set up like a band locker room. <laughs> it's, exactly, it's exactly it. Yep. And I just have, I've accumulated so much stuff over the years and it, it's, I guess, uh, sort of a parallel to all this, the weird experiences I've had and put together, you know, all the stuff I've collected. So diversity. All right. Uh, is there, is there a website or a place that people can follow you if they want to find out more about what you're doing? You know, basically just my personal Facebook. I I tried to set up a professional Facebook, but I've, I've never really been able to manage it. So it's not public. But most of the stuff that's on my, my personal page is, is is stuff that I'm involved in currently. Um, I will uh, say to keep track of what Bantam Rooster is doing. That's a band that I play with. And we have a, we have a, a Facebook page, too. And also the, all the things that I'm involved in at the School of the Arts, um, School of Music, UNCSA. Um, those are productions that one way or another I'm involved in too. Okay. So. And actually just one last question about, about that. So, um, production manager, you, UNCSA, when I last had lunch with you, which is hard to believe, I think it was this calendar year, wasn't it? Like right before it all was, this it was went like down. January or February. Yeah. yeah. I, it's like, can't do that anymore. <laughs> at least not for a while. Exactly. Um, but you were, uh, that your title was interim. Is that still the case? That is the case still. Currently. Okay. So I'm here definitely through the semester and, Hopefully to to keep going on after that. One way or another, I'll be involved. So okay. but it's it's a it's a really neat position. Unfortunately, I didn't know what to expect in the first place. So whatever it is that I'm doing from day to day is just being invented as we go along. So I love right. the fluidity of it. Right. Well, I'm sure this would have been a fun, but you know, albeit maybe shorter run of a show if if we if it just been the two of us. Uh, oh yeah. You know, but uh, I'm more. glad that it's a guest show and that you could be one of the guests and. Uh, I was just saying that I, I ran across a couple months ago a, an article called, I'm paraphrasing, but it's called um, Why Nobody Wants a Pit Musician's Autograph. Now, ironically, I, I never actually read the article, but I was just sort of curious about you know the subject matter, and this is exactly what you're addressing um, in this podcast. Wow, nice. <laughs> so thank you for, I know you're busy. Thank you for taking the time to be on my show. Thank you for having me, David. This is great, and I'd love the opportunity to, to promote what we do as pit, pit musicians. And that's it for this week. Next week's episode begins what I consider to be a trilogy. I've already shared episodes from three different performers of multiple woodwinds, and now I'm going to have an episode featuring people who play mostly just one family of woodwinds. First up is Dr. Tika Douthit talking about flutes. That's episode 18, next Friday, September 18th. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or Twitter and Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, a special thanks to Mark Parolo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. All original music is composed and performed by David Lane. 
You can find out more about the podcast at davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app and share with your friends. Thank you for listening.